Hi, and welcome to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today for episode 349, Chris Stewart, founder and CEO of Shortbits, joins me on the show. And so some of you who have been listening for a long time might recall my episode with Nadav Cohen, episode 219, which I'll put in the show notes for this also. But in this one, we get into quote-unquote maximalism and tech, this notion of policing activity, the block space market over time, as well as where DLCs are at today. This is discrete log contracts. What are some of the uses? This could include gambling and betting and potentially even stable channels. This idea of providing a stable amount of value for somebody, but denominated in Satoshis. So we get into some of that as well as how they're done on-chain and potentially in the future how it could be done in Lightning. Now, there's also recently a launch in the Umbral app, so that's what we also talk about in this episode. This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the easy way to buy and learn about Bitcoin. Now, for high net worth investors and entity accounts, if you're with a business, Swan Private is available for you. And Swan Private is available not just in the US, but in most countries around the world. Swan Private provides unlimited access to experts and seasoned hands. So some customers who are frustrated with getting stuck in customer support ticket hell, well, with Swan Private, you have an expert who you can text, email, call, and get some answers and discussion. Swan Private has full support for trusts, businesses, and other entity accounts. You also receive a monthly Swan Private Insight research report. And with your expert, you get guidance on choosing the right custody option for your assets. So whether you are a high net worth individual or a business looking to purchase Bitcoin, go to swanprivate.com. Lend at HodlHodl is a peer-to-peer Bitcoin-backed lending platform where you can lend or borrow stable coins globally and anonymously. Sign up in just 30 seconds and borrow stable coins without verification. Deal directly with other people and the users control collateral together throughout the whole deal with all the interest paid at the end. Now, on the other hand, if you have stable coins, you can earn extra by lending them out at high returns, issuing over-collateralized loans with full interest guaranteed. Lend at HodlHodl, lend and borrow stablecoins on your terms at your desired interest rates. There are no hidden fees, the terms and conditions are transparent, and users control the keys in the deal in escrow. Go and check it out. The website is lend.hodlhodl.com. Are you looking to get started with Bitcoin mining? Compass Mining is the world's first and largest online marketplace for Bitcoin mining hardware, hosting, and ASIC reselling. Compass is adding over 280 megawatts worth of hosting capacity this year alone with more to come. So on the website, you can select either new machines, and if you're in the US, you can have machines shipped to your home for home mining, or you can also select used machines, which may be able to come online sooner. On the Compass website, you'll also find a newsletter and some audio podcast material that you can also use to upgrade your knowledge on mining. So compassmining.io is the website. On to the show with Chris. Chris, welcome to the show. Hey, nice to be talking with you, Stefan. Chris, I'm a fan of your work. I like reading your posts and hearing some of your commentary in the space. I know you're doing a lot of stuff. Obviously, you're CEO and founder of Short Bits. Can you tell us a little bit about what's on your mind lately in terms of what's happening in the space? Well, I think the you know the space is just growing at such a fast rate. Uh, the wider um, cryptocurrency ecosystem is tough to keep up these days. Uh, I'm an old man in the uh, Bitcoin world and, uh, you know, it used to be very easy to follow everything going on. And now it's, you know, it's hard to follow what's just going on in Bitcoin, much less like what's going on in the rest of the ecosystem. And, uh, you know, one one thing that I want to promote today, along with, you know, Shirtbit stuff and our our recent DLC wallet release is uh, 
the idea of looking to other ecosystems and understanding why is something successful over there and then asking the question if this is something that we would like to have in Bitcoin or not. Um, and I think I think that's a question that's not asked enough these days. And you know, part of what we're doing with DLCs is really taking some things that we've seen in other ecosystems. Oracle-based uh, contracts are very successful in other ecosystems and bringing those to Bitcoin and hopefully stealing the uh, you know transaction volume that comes along with those things uh, in, in other uh, ecosystems. I think this is a really interesting trend and something we should touch on and go further on as well as you rightly say, because it brings up this whole conversation around, okay, people bring up like maximalism and technology and, you know, for what reason people might be asking that question as you're, I guess, also asking is that question of should everything be done on Bitcoin per se, quotation marks? Well, let let me give my like uh, background on this. And, you know, I got into Bitcoin in that 2014, 2015 era Blockstream was just coming out of the gate hot, you know, raised a bunch of money from Silicon Valley. And uh, me as a Bitcoin, lowly Bitcoin developer at the time was like, oh, my God, this is so awesome. And one of the core tenets of the the Blockstream vision was the sidechain vision, right? And it's like, oh, yeah, let's make other blockchains, add new features to them, tinker around with them. Maybe they blow up. Maybe they don't. Um, And if the idea is good enough, let's bring the idea from the sidechain back into Bitcoin. Um, you know, here we sit seven years later, six years later or whatever, and the, the, the side, sidechain ecosystem is growing, I would say. It's not the rocket ship I think we would love to have seen, but um, what we have seen is, you know, other people creating other blockchains and, uh, you know, experimenting with these other blockchains. And um, where I sit and where I, what, what I think we should be doing is like, we should be looking at what those other blockchains are doing and seeing what is successful what is not successful? What uh, features can we add to Bitcoin to make Bitcoin more valuable at the end of the day? Because I think that's what we all want to see. We want to be really cautious and risk averse with Bitcoin because it is, you know, the the flagship cryptocurrency and the largest cryptocurrency by market cap. But that also doesn't mean we can't ever change Bitcoin when we see good ideas come along to enhance Bitcoin's value. I think what we want to do at the end of the day is, you know, make Bitcoin as valuable as possible and also make sure we have sustainable source of transaction fee demand uh, that we've seen in other blockchain ecosystems. And I've been kind of tweeting about this recently. And um, it's it's very interesting to see uh, the, the the shift in narratives from the Bitcoiners over the years of, uh, you know, Bitcoin's going to be a high fee blockchain and it's going to, you know, be moving large amounts of value. And uh, now we've almost flipped in the last like three or four years to Bitcoin to low fee blockchain. And you should come to Bitcoin and do all your, your transactional business over here. And Ethereum now is a high fee blockchain. And, you know, that it goes two ways, right? You know, the Bitcoiners have kind of flipped their um, narrative, but Ethereum people have flipped their narrative too. And, you know, Bitcoiners like to criticize the Ethereum side of things, which is true, but don't necessarily look to see as like, oh, hey, like, we got to figure out this fee problem at some point, like maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but we do need, uh, you know, this demand for transaction fees to sustain the network over a long period of time. And so there might be some people who, I'm playing devil's advocate, right? But for example, they they might say, look, I don't care if this thing happens on Bitcoin because I would rather, you know, Bitcoin be seen more like a money and it doesn't necessarily need all this advanced financial 
uh, contracting technology. Now, I'm not saying I hold that view, but I'm just curious to your view. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's, uh, you know, I, I've been thinking about this a lot lately, and these are loosely held beliefs, so uh, um, don't uh, break me over the coals on it too much. But, uh, you know, Bitcoin was kind of born out of this uh, detestment for the banks, you know, the Occupy Wall Street movement. And, uh, you know, Satoshi, for God's sakes, put that in the Genesis block, right? And uh, it's interesting, like, I guess where I am at on my thinking on this now is like, a lot of Bitcoiners like associate like monetary theory stuff with just access to financial tools, and sometimes conflate the two. Like, I think having risk management tools for, you know, whatever you want to do available to you directly on Bitcoin is a very valuable feature to have. So, you know, one of the things that we always talk about and why people are very interested in DLCs is the contracts for difference, right? It's a financial tool to be able to hedge your Bitcoin volatility risk and peg it to something else like the USD. That uh, is it's just flat out useful to people. I just think it's something that, uh, you know, people in emerging economies, especially, uh, is something they want available to them. And uh, what, what, what I think sometimes goes on with the, the Bitcoin kind of maxi crowd is they automatically associate tools like that that are just available. You don't have to use them, but just available to other users as a bad thing and think um, that, you know, it's somehow going to, like, I guess, interfere with the monetary policy uh, of Bitcoin itself. And I, I think those two things are distinct um, camps, I guess. And th th that's kind of where my thinking is on, on this now. What, what, do, what do you think? Do you think that's accurate? Do you think, um, do you think I'm missing something? So I think what you're also saying gets into that question around, quote unquote, again, not exactly this, but quote unquote, policing activity. What is good activity and what is, quote unquote, yeah. bad activity? And so I think there are some ways in which we can rightly look to altcoins and say, look, a lot of that is actually just leverage casino things. It's just yeah. people are just playing these kind of leverage casino games. And then yeah. sometimes that is used by altcoiners as part of their narrative to say, oh, look, See, look how, many, look how sure. much fee is being paid for all the Ethereum things going on. Therefore, look how good, you know, because, okay, uh, it's kind of complicated, right? Because back in 2017, there were arguments about, look, that bar's too crowded, nobody goes there because fees were sure. high. And so that was seen as like, hey, right? So, but now it's almost like things have flipped a bit because as you rightly said, Bitcoin fees have come down and people could, we could probably summarize that as saying because of SegWit, plus batching, plus maybe some lightning and, and maybe shifts in the consumer behavior have changed such that Bitcoin's fees are now low in terms of on-chain or lightning, relatively. Whereas in the Ethereum world and in the altcoin world, gas fees are quite high. Yes. And so part of the debate is, is that a good thing or is that a bad thing? And so from the access point of view, it's obviously a bad thing. People who are poor can't afford to pay $50 every transaction, $100 sure. a transaction. But the question is also around why. And so as to what you were saying as well, like, should we see it like that it, those use, some of those use cases are just not relevant or they are only writing a paper, like it's like when you burn a piece of paper, like, yeah, of course it burns very brightly, yeah. but it, is, it just, is it just a very ethereal thing? Is that not the long-term thing? I think that's probably where the debate might lie. Yeah. It, I think like, you know, when I, you know, tweeted out this stuff like a week ago, it's like a lot of like the re replies that I would get is like, oh, this is just like a VC, you know, pump casino, essentially kind of, you know, what, what you're mentioning. And like, well, that's partly true. Like, I don't 
I, I think that is partly true. Like, I don't want to say that that's, you know, totally offline or, you know, totally off base. And uh, um, there there is no merit to that argument. But I don't think that's the entire story. And I think a lot of Bitcoiners, unfortunately, do like to pretend like that's the entire story rather than understanding that, no, this is like actually a new feature. And, you know, what I branded as a censorship resistant financial markets. And, uh, you know, looking at something like Uniswap, for instance, and uh, seeing that you can now go trustlessly, trustlessly, I guess, quote unquote, trade out of your, you know, Ethereum for USDT or USDC or whatever. And that's just, uh, you know, frankly, a very valuable feature, I think, on the Ethereum blockchain. We can like debate, you know, until the cows come home, like how censorship resistant Ethereum is or, you know, is Ethereum going to scale like we've been doing for the last five years? And frankly, I'm a little tired of those debates. So I want to like actually focus on what are people paying fees for over there? Why do they find these things valuable? And am I as a Bitcoiner missing something that's happening in these other ecosystems? And then can I do anything about bringing these features to Bitcoin so that, you know, A, Bitcoin's more useful and B, um, you know, Bitcoin fee pressure starts going up because we need both. I mean, I think we all want to see both those things happen. Um, you know, what from where I sit in the ecosystem, I guess, you know, I'm, I've been a Bitcoiner through and through for quite some time now. And uh, I think uh, we do a good job of, you know, criticizing other chains. But we don't also, but we kind of tend to miss the valuable feature that's kind of underlying the thing and take it seriously. And I've been, you know, I, I'm guilty of this in the past. I'm, not, I'm no saint in that regard, but I'm trying to change my mindset and, uh, you know, take the, yeah, take, take, the, take the arguments more seriously and figure out if there is a way to bring this to uh, the Bitcoin ecosystem, because, you know, I, I think it would, it would be wonderful to have some of these features. Great. So, yeah, I definitely want to get into bringing it to Bitcoin. Uh, a couple of things I wanted to get to first, though, is I think one of the points, and I think you've, you've rightly been making this point as well, is that Bitcoin as a system really prioritizes some of these ideas around being distributed and actually having censorship resistance. And so you made some comments on some altcoins about liquidation preference. So I'm wondering if you could just explain that for some of the listeners, some of your views around that, how you're contrasting Bitcoin with some of the altcoins. Well, I, you know, I think it's uh, it comes down to the consensus mechanism chosen on other altcoins. And, uh, you know, they're, they're having to update their uh, consensus code to understand the limitations of their, you know, of, of their blockchain. Which, um, you know, going to me earlier about throwing, you know, I guess, I guess throwing shade at uh, other blockchain ecosystems. See, I, I can't kick the habit. I, 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 I still do it. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I mean, I, I don't think it's anything, you know, too interesting, really. It's like, you know, it's the limitations of a proof of stake blockchain is really you're run by a system of oligarchs, right? Like the people that hold the stake determine what's ha what happens on the chain. And, uh, you know, the, the, the tweets that you're referencing are in relation to Solana. And, you know, I, I was kind of happy that they're realizing this and just doubling down on it even more because it is a fund fundamental limitation to the blockchain that they have. And uh, now they are allowing stakeholders, I guess, to prioritize uh, what gets in the, I mean, I, I forgot what the specific details were. It was like, I think it was like what gets relayed on the network and uh, the Solana founder, Anatoly, had a very interesting way of um, branding it as, uh, I think it was bandwidth access <laughs> rather than uh, censoring. 
And, uh, you know, it's like one of those classic slight, seems like one of those classic sleight of hand uh, things. And, uh, you know, the, the, the rest of the blockchain ecosystem, I guess, doesn't really have the values that we have as, as Bitcoiners. They just try and um, kind of masquerade behind those values, use Bitcoin as the, um, the kind of flagship cryptocurrency and sneak in uh, behind the scenes and, uh, you know, throw, also throw shade at it or distinguish between the difference between Bitcoin and their uh you know, particular altcoins. So I guess nothing new going on there. That's been going on since the dawn of time, essentially. So in that discussion around quote-unquote security budget, there are differing views. So in one version of that story, it's let's say we've got until 2035 or so to raise the uh, security budget because there'll be all these fee paying required as opposed sure. to subsidy. And because yes. in, in that version of the story we might not be having exponential growth every year or every four years to account for that uh, halving of the block subsidy, meaning a lot more has to be done by Bitcoin transaction fees. Now, on the other side of that camp, you might say someone like Pierre Rochard as an example, who's saying, no, don't even think about like security budget. It's you as an individual. You're the one trying to get your transaction confirmed. So either you pay more uh, or you wait longer for confirmations. So I'm wondering, do you have any thoughts on that? I, I think if I, I, I don't know if I fully understand uh, Pierre's argument and maybe, uh, you know, educate me because I'd like to learn. But I, I think I'm in the, the, the former camp of just, uh, you know, we need more demand for uh, Bitcoin transactions. Uh, let's, you know, we, we can't count on exponential growth of Bitcoin price, you know, to continue. Uh, you know, I'm of the opinion that's going to be linear uh, at best from here, maybe logarithmic, uh, realistically, like every other market ever developed. So I, I think... Uh, you know, we do have time in terms of the, you know, the block subsidy. I don't think this has to be fixed tomorrow, but I think we should start uh, thinking and looking at each other as like, you know, I guess you could, one cut on it is the scaling technology is working too well. I don't know if I um, am fully in that camp. Uh, I think the shift in consumer behavior is really what's going on here. Like a, a friend of mine, uh, Sergey Kotlier, who runs Bid Refill, they publish uh, transaction statistics that they see for their service. And uh, I think um, now with BitRefill, it's roughly 30% of payments are done in uh, Bitcoin and 30% of payments are done in ETH. Uh, I think Bitcoin is slightly ahead still, but it's, you know, a percentage point or two. And, uh, you know, with the way things are going, I, I don't know if that's going to change. And that's a scary thing as a Bitcoiner is uh, I'm, we're, we're seeing broad shift in consumer behavior away from Bitcoin. And we as, you know, a fixed uh, supply uh, system, you know, 21 million Bitcoin ever, uh, we need to, you know, make up for that fee revenue somewhere uh, to make sure that the system remains sustainable over the long term. Again, I, 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 the criticism I'll get for, you know, saying these things is... Uh, you know, hey, Chris, you've got 10 years, like there's a lot that can happen in 10 years. And you're probably right. But I was shocked, you know, just maybe maybe this is just me being out of the loop or not of touch. But uh, I was shocked at how many people don't seem to have internalized this or understand this about Bitcoin, and how it is very important that we you know, are compensating miners for the service that they're providing. If anybody's listening to this and is a miner, uh, you should really be worried uh, after investing all this capital, uh, you know, to spin up your mining farms and, uh, you know, that number is going to go down in terms of block subsidy and you better hope that fee number goes up. Otherwise, you're going to find yourself out of business and, uh, you know, not, not, not too long, I guess. Yeah, interesting thoughts. I, I think if I had to speculate, my guess is we'll see it almost like a seesaw effect, right? It's like we'll see the... For fees or Bitcoin price? Uh, for fees. Because okay. my, my speculation, again, I'm speculating, but 
my speculation is that the entrepreneurs and the developers will find ways to scale things and you know and then what happens is eventually we'll hit a whole new round of people coming in and that'll bump the fees up really high and then again the entrepreneurs and the tech guys will go to work and then optimize it and then bring it back down and it's going to be sort of like this seesaw kind of factor Um, but i am i remain fundamentally bullish to the point that i think we may see well, hundreds of millions and someday billions of people using Bitcoin. And so with that many people trying to open channels, I think it might not <laughs> opening lightning channels or doing DLC or whatever, you know, but you, you don't take that. You don't take the point of view that the scaling tech might be too good. Yeah, well, that might be interesting to see if it does happen that way. But I think at that point, you would then have to just wait for confirmations. And then then some miners might get wrecked because maybe they went too hard into capital equipment. And yeah, okay, maybe they... Let, let me untangle this just a little because, you know, I, I guess I, I'm making a bunch of assumptions just for the listeners sure. so that they uh, follow along with this. It's like, let's say like Lightning is wildly successful and just, uh, you know, sucks up all transaction demand on the base level Bitcoin blockchain. Um, you know, people are acting in the happy path on the Lightning network. Channel closes are few and far between. Um, you know, everything's, uh, you know, roses over there in the lightning ecosystem. Uh, well, that might be bad for Bitcoin base chain, right? Because then the, the, all that fee, uh, you know, the fee pressure or fee, uh, fees that are associated with lightning, you know, don't end up going and compensating the miners. You know, is this realistic? Is this like, a you know, a scenario that'll play out? Maybe not. And, but like, it's a hypothetical that's fun thinking of. And, uh, you know, if you are truly worried about the security budget, I guess it's uh, something worth considering. I still believe it's a shift in consumer uh, behavior that is the reason we have such low fees. But if Lightning does continue to scale and grow like it is, um, and we see large players in the ecosystem adopt it, I think that is uh, you know plausible. And like one of the reasons that people, um, well, no, I, I actually got called out on this on Twitter. I thought a reason for Bitcoin transaction demand. The reason it went down was because like things like stable coins moved from uh, Bitcoin to Ethereum or Tron or, you know, whatever other blockchain. However, I guess that uh, uh, according to Eric Wall anyway, is like not the case. And really the reason we had such high fees in the 2017 timeframe was people trying to ARB uh, between exchanges and the uh, Bitcoin transactions were very time sensitive to take advantage of those ARBs. So sorry, now I'm arguing with myself on a podcast. (laughs) Well, look, I think so. I think the broader idea is that if you make Bitcoin or Lightning more useful and DLCs more useful, more people will use the chain, whether that's to open or close Lightning channels or to do DLCs. And I think as we just see hundreds of millions or even billions of people come to use Bitcoin, even with all that engineering tech coming in, I just think we're just going to see so much more demand for on-chain transactions, even if it's just Lightning Channel open and close or other, or CoinJoin, right? People want to use CoinJoin. So I think there'll just be that base yeah. f- base load of demand. Um, so yeah, I think those are probably a few points to wrap up. I don't know if you've got anything on that. Otherwise, we can... Uh... Well, segueing into DLCs is like that is part of the goal with DLCs, right? And like kind of like I mentioned earlier is like, you know, we need a a place where, you know, Bitcoin fee demand is going to come from. DLCs require on-chain transactions currently. 
And uh, it's also just a, I think, objectively useful feature to have. Uh, you know, you don't have to use them if you don't want to, but people generally want to, you know, bet on things that are outside of the Bitcoin blockchain, like a sporting event, or they want to hedge uh, Bitcoin volatility risk uh, with contracts for difference or forward contracts, options contracts, you know, just like traditional uh, risk management tools that we see, see in TradFi, bring that to Bitcoin reduce the uh, ability, the, the counterparty risk, reduce your counterparty risk associated with custody and, uh, you know, be able to see where your coins are at the entire time so you don't get goxed or something. And that's, uh, you know, kind of the the pitch for DLCs is to, you know, give start bringing some of these financial tools to Bitcoin in a censorship resistant way. And uh, with the caveat there being the Oracle risk, of course. Yeah. And I think this is really interesting to see. And it's, just cool to see where the DLC ecosystem is. It, I'm curious your view. If you had to analogize with Lightning, where are we in DLCs as a technology in Bitcoin? Like, are we are we sort of similar to 2018, 2019 when it was hashtag reckless in Lightning? Is it similar to then, or where are we at? Yeah, I I, I think that's extremely uh, correct. You know, I we we shipped our Umbrel wallet, the Shirtbits wallet on Umbrel uh, last week. And, you know, we, we're, we're finding bugs, we're fixing bugs as they come up. And don't be too reckless with the amount of money that you put into a DLC wallet at this point. But do, you know, tinker around with it. If you find a bug, please do report it so that we can, uh, you know, start knocking these things out and improving the reliability of our software. Um, it is like, you know, I, I think discrete log contracts are here to stay and they're going to be around for a very long time and be a very useful tool. But uh, yeah, where we're at in development today is definitely uh, that 2017, 2018 timeframe for Lightning. And, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's fun to be a part of the, like the developer ecosystem then because everything's changing, everything's growing. You know, we're seeing like new potential use cases, new DLC startups popping up, which, uh, you know, is really cool for me to see. And, uh, you know, we're just starting to figure out like what what is the untapped uh, potential here in the DLC uh, ecosystem. And, most importantly, how do we get this out of like, you know, the hardcore tech people's hands like me and into like a norm, a normie's hands. And that's, uh, you know, what the uh, kind of next, uh, next steps are is kind of on, on my list anyway, is like get this out of like the hardcore Bitcoin maxi ecosystem and make it a usable product for end users that uh, provide value to them at the end of the day. Yeah, interesting. And maybe maybe there's a step between right between like the really technical people and then let's say the power user very enthusiastic about Bitcoin crowd, where they might then be the people who then go on and help push it to other people out there who are like, not even like hardcore Bitcoin people, right? So maybe that's Maybe that's kind of an analogy. And if you could just give us a bit of an overview, where is it at in terms of the spec, right? Is there a spec? I know there's a specification for it and there are people collaborating on that. If you could just comment a little bit on what does the ecosystem look like today for DLCs? Yeah, sure. So there is an open source specification. We have uh, three or four teams working on the open source specification, similar to Lightning. And, uh, you know, those teams are Crypto Garage, the atomic finance guys have committed a bunch of resources uh, to you know working on the spec. There's us at Sherdbits, and then uh, we're we're seeing kind of some new uh, companies emerge. The Commit Network team in Australia, I believe. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with them, and they make the Itchy Sats uh, Umbrel product, which is contracts for difference uh, backed by DLCs as well. I'm meeting with another uh, you know founder later today that's very interested in. Uh, building uh, a new application using discrete log contracts. And we're seeing some stuff come up on the Oracle, uh, e- in the Oracle ecosystem too. Uh, a company wants to uh, 
uh, it's called dlc.link and they want to bridge the chain link data feeds into the DLC ecosystem and they've received a grant from Chainlink to do this. So, yeah, I mean, but going back to the core, like, you know, specification work, we want to be an open source specification that the entire community can get around, be compatible with across wallets so that anybody's Bitcoin wallet can speak DLC, so to speak, and, uh, you know, enter into bets or hedge risk or, you know, take on more risk if you want to. And um, just open up that uh, toolkit uh, to uh, more users using Bitcoin. Back to the show in a moment. Unchained Capital are providing collaborative custody. This is a great option for those of you out there looking to improve your security and remove single points of failure. With Unchained Capital's collaborative custody, you hold two keys and they hold one. They can co-sign for you if you need this. And if you are unsure about how to set this up, they have a concierge onboarding program. So unchained.com slash concierge, you get an onboarding call with a vault specialist, you get recovery training, you get 90 days of access to concierge client and ongoing support and $1,000 of Bitcoin dropped in your vault. So go to unchained.com slash concierge and use the code Levera for a discount on your concierge package. And for Bitcoin hardware in the space, check out coinkite.com. They're a long-time provider in the Bitcoin world, and in recent years, they've been very focused on Bitcoin hardware. So they've got the cold card, which is my favorite Bitcoin hardware wallet. You can use this air-gapped, you can use it in a single signature setup, or you can use it as part of a multi-signature setup. And you can do this easily with wallets like Spectre Desktop, Sparrow, Electrum, or Blue Wallet. Now, they've also got the new one, the Mark IV, coming out, which you can pre-order. So that's also there on the website, coinkite.com. So if you need your wallet sooner, then order the Mark III and use the code Levera for a discount, or otherwise order the Mark IV, which there is no discount code for. So that's, that website is coinkite.com. And finally, brains.com. Brains are a Bitcoin mining company through and through, and they've got a range of products and services that you can use. So if you're in Bitcoin mining, you can get Brains OS Plus. This is aftermarket firmware that you can install on your ASIC machine to auto-tune your firmware and get more bang for your buck. Also, if you use Brains OS Plus and point your hash rate towards slush pool, you actually receive 0% pool fees. So that's a really great benefit. So if you go to the website at brains.com, that's brains with two eyes, you can find out which models are supported and then install that software. Now, Brains also offer an insights dashboard that's available over at insights.brains.com, which also has some great statistics on there. And I'll be getting Daniel on soon to chat about that. That website is brains.com. And now back to the show. And where are DLCs at from a wallet point of view? I know you've mentioned that there was recently an Umbral integration. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so uh, we have a old janky desktop wallet is what I would call it, which is, is very hard to use. We're working on uh, rewriting that currently. We did just release yeah, our, our Sherdbits wallet on Umbrel. That has the capability to do DLCs that like bet on things like elections, like Trump versus Biden, for instance, or do more complicated numeric uh, DLCs, which allow you to, you know, make things like futures contract or forward contracts and options contracts. Uh, you know, I, I have an ongoing uh, Twitter thread where I'm entering into Super Bowl bets with people here in the United States. Uh, 
you know, one of the, one of the original visions that we wanted to uh, get DLCs to is be simple enough to have people enter into bets over, you know, a, a medium like Twitter. Um, we're getting closer to that. There is still some uh, friction associated with that. But with the with the Umbrel setup, uh, you know, it gives people with a nice uh, a one click install experience if they have Umbrel set up, and they can begin uh, tinkering around with uh, DLCs right after that. You know, we we have tried to take the uh, uh, self custodial path with the products that we're developing. Uh, so that you know we're we're not taking custody of anybody's funds. We're not being counterparties to anybody's like trades necessarily at a company level. So um, you know we we are trying to you know develop this market, but also uh, try and do it in the you know the cypherpunk way, I guess. And it's always easy to make a centralized product from a decentralized product, but it's very hard to um, go in reverse. So we're we're taking the decentralized approach and seeing uh, you know what what market develops. But if anybody listening to this podcast wants to do a Super Bowl DLC with me, reach out to me on Twitter, and I'm happy to uh, you know walk you through uh, setting up a DLC. And uh, you got to bet on the Los Angeles Rams or the uh, Cincinnati Bengals. And uh, if you're a Bengals fan, especially DM me because I have a lot of Bengals exposure right now. <laughs> I need to hedge some of that risk. So let's walk that through just for people who may not have used the wallet yet. What does it look like in terms of picking an oracle and actually engaging in this bet? What is it, if you could just walk that through for us? Yeah, so Oracle Discovery is one of the, um, I, I would say one of the harder problems in the space. Like uh, for the, if you're not familiar with the discrete log contracts, they are not like a trustless system. You are very much trusting an oracle to tell you what happened in the real world. So it's very, very important that you uh, pick the correct oracle, uh, or sorry, not correct, but a trustworthy oracle to uh, attest to what your bet is. Um, we have made a product called the Sherdbits Oracle Explorer that's for finding oracles. It's at oracle.sherdbits.com. And you'll see a whole bunch of oracles listed on that site. You'll see things like the Super Bowl bet, like I just mentioned. You'll see one that Atomic Finance uses every Friday for settling their uh, their options markets. It's uh, the Sherdbits Oracle bot, a uh, test to what the Deribit index price is. And you'll see other like weird things like, ah, what was the last uh, bit in um, you know, a specific block height? But um, anyway, so you need to pick an oracle. You need to find an oracle that's attesting to what the thing is you're interested in. So I don't know, maybe somebody wants to bet on how long Stefan Lavera and Chris Stewart's podcast goes. And <laughs> is it over or under an hour? And, uh, you know, you go to the Oracle Explorer and you're like, ah, there is no Oracle for this. Like, how do I get an Oracle? It's like, well, the answer is you can make one yourself or you can pay a service provider to create an Oracle for you. And that's a line of business we're looking at spinning up at Shirtbits is uh, providing Oracle services to folks that need them because it seems to be kind of a logical, um, I, I guess, a, a, a logical uh, market for us to develop and hopefully generate revenue off of. Um, but so we find this Oracle that's like Stefan and Chris is the podcast going an hour or more, or is it going to be under an hour? And now that we've got this Oracle, we can go specify the terms of the bet. And the terms of the bet are things like, ah, how much do you get paid if the podcast is under an hour? How much do you get paid if the podcast is over an hour? How much do you get paid if it's exactly an hour? You always got to account for these cases. And then how much do you get paid if Stefan's internet connection disconnects or my internet (laughs) connection disconnects? You got to, you got to think of the fun corner cases too. I I usually call them like acts of God or something like that. 
so that you understand uh, where the money should go if something unexpected happens. Once you've agreed to um, the, these financial terms and conditions, you actually begin the negotiation process between your two wallets. So this is step three out of, uh, you know, step one is getting an oracle. Step two is specifying the financial terms and conditions. And step three is building the Bitcoin transaction that represents the DLC. And this is where the, the wallet comes into play here. You, uh, your, your wallet will select some funds to fund your DLC. You need to go get your peer's Tor address. And uh, behind the scenes, after you have the peer's Tor address, uh, the wallets will just negotiate with each other and open up a DLC between the two wallets, just similar to how a Lightning channel is open um, in the Lightning ecosystem. The, the wallets speak the same protocol like we were referencing before, so they know how to build the same uh, set of Bitcoin transactions. Um, you know, after uh, the podcast is published and the oracles go and look, ah, Chris and Stefan's podcast went you know, an hour and 10 minutes. Um, I guess I have to sign the case where the podcast went over an hour publish those attestations, those signatures to the Oracle Explorer, and then anybody's wallet can go and fetch those attestations and settle the DLC based on what the Oracle attested to. Um, so there's a lot in there. I'm, I'm happy to explain like any specific step because I yeah, I definitely flew through it, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. No, but th- I think that's it was a good overview for people out there and probably a lot of listeners are already relatively savvy with Bitcoin things. And so analogizing to let's say the lightning channel as an example when you open that channel there's the funding output and so in this case the dlc funding output is okay as an example let's say you and i were placing this bet and then we might both contribute some coin or some utxo into that and then there would be let's say we both get our change outputs and then there'd be a funding output and that's the one that's like that can go either way depending on who wins the bet and let's say you know we've got an oracle that oracle is, I don't know, Marty Bent, and Marty Bent is the oracle, and he puts out the attestation to say, yep, it was over an hour, and, uh, you know, let's say you, you win the bet, then your, what happens at that point, does your, your short bits DLC wallet would then, is, is sort of looking for that attestation, what happens then? So, right now, the, the process is you would have to go to the oracle listing on the Sherdbits Oracle Explorer, you would have to copy the attestations to your clipboard and then manually paste them in the wallet. We want to get to the point where that just gets automated and automatically gets settled, or you'll at least have a notification in your wallet that, hey, Marty attested to, you know, how long Chris and Stefan's podcast was. Do you want to settle your DLC? And just, uh, you know, give a nice prompt that uh, allows the user to click OK and, you know, the rest of the stuff just happens behind the scenes. We're not quite there yet, but that's like the, the kind of grand scheme of things is, uh, uh, you know, our grand plan is to automate some of that stuff. Because uh, once the Oracle does put out to put out its signatures, it's, uh, you know, it's it's settled unless you uh, don't broadcast those signatures until the refund lock time. And I probably should mention that uh, one built in feature that we have put into DLCs is a safety mechanism is refunds in the case where the Oracle just falls off the face of the earth. You know, maybe Marty's having too much fun at Bitcoin 2022 in Miami and he uh, forgets to attest to, you know, Chris and Stefan's podcast. Shame on him for not listening to us. <laughs> and uh, so he, he uh, you know, doesn't do his job. And, you know, we're sitting here with our DLC being like, hey, like, what the heck do we do? Like, I don't want to black hole these funds forever. Uh, you know, maybe Marty was in a boating accident for all I know. Um, and so th- in that case, with the refund clause, 
after a certain amount of time, 14 days by default, you just get your money back. And that's the best case that we came up with for handling this situation. I, you know, someone's always going to be mad in that case because they're losing their rightfully earned sats. But, you know, if the Oracle falls off the face of the earth, we, we can't do anything about it. It is a trusted system. We're trusting Oracles to do their job. And all we can do is uh, mitigate that trust in certain ways uh, if, if they don't do, take any action. Is there a way that Oracles can get paid as part of this? And if so, is that part of the DLC concept or is it they're paid out of band? Let's say I you go to a website and I find a, repu- a person who's reputable and he's like, okay, I'm, I'm going to make some money. I'm going to be an Oracle. Pay me in a lightning payment just separately out of band? Or how, well, how's that working? So uh, this is an emerging market. You know, we're about to uh, get it, you know, get into our first uh, kind of Oracle as a service uh, SLA with the folks over at Atomic Finance, and we'll be compensated as part of our Oracle services we're providing. So we're really excited to see this Oracle market spin up and provide a way for users to make revenue if they're willing to put in the, the time and legwork uh, necess- necessary to, you know, be a trustworthy Oracle. Um, so this is like, you know, in terms of like how you actually get paid, you know, you can go the route of just paying over the Lightning Network. And then uh, after the payments received, you publish your Oracle attestations. You can uh, pay up front. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if we necessarily have strong opinions about, you know, how this market will develop. I'm just excited that there seems to be a market in the first place that I want to make it work so that, uh, you know, it, it, it's easy as possible for people to uh, get paid for the the trust that they're providing. You know, at the end of the day, if you're an Oracle, you're providing trust. And if you're doing it at a high level and never, um, you know, lying or always posting timely attestations, unlike Marty, uh, you should be compensated for the services that you're provided. And uh, that's the market that we're seeing develop here. Uh, and as DLCs p- pick up, you know, there's always going to be a market for uh, trustworthy oracles, and uh, that is the core bedrock of what is going on in DLCs. So, yeah, that, I, that, yeah that, sure. that's where that kind of stands. So I'm just thinking out loud. I think there could potentially be big markets in this for gambling, let's say, because gambling is a huge sure. market, right? And as we were obviously, you know, punching the, the altcoins a bit for encouraging the leverage casino gambling aspect of it, this might be an angle where... There are existing companies in the world today who might really like this idea that let, you know, because they could offer like a gambling service and be a gambling oracle and let people bet amongst themselves in a specific way, obviously in a Bitcoin native or more Bitcoin way. So maybe that's a a potential, although of course it would require more building out because right now we're still way too early days for that. But I could imagine years down the line, let's say the wallets are all good and built out and maybe it's built into lots of the nodes and at that point maybe there's more of a demand or maybe it's built out into a slick app on the phone that can enable more easy betting in a quote-unquote or at least trust minimized way let's say well i think that's absolutely right you know from people that i talked to you know we were both in el salvador and i i did a talk on dlcs there and you know after doing the talk like i had like three or four sports betting people come up to me afterwards saying this is perfect for sports betting the number one problem that we have in the sports betting there's two problems uh there's the problem of the uh, bookie takes outrageous fees and nobody likes paying these fees and then two is like well if i'm just trusting somebody over telegram like then he doesn't pay like 
you know, you're kind of SOL. So like DLCs kind of fit this middle ground of like, I know the person has to have the money because he's putting the money into the DLC. And then also it can be peer to peer. So the bookie isn't taking such an outrageous fee. Like I got told it's like on the order of 5%. That seems high to me. I don't know if I believe that, but, uh, if it is a 5% fee on like, say you're doing a million dollar bet or something crazy like that, you know, we're talking $50,000 and just uh, fee bookie fees here. Um, I think DLCs make a lot of sense for very large bets where like, say you're a nation state like El Salvador, for instance, and you know, you have these Bitcoin on your balance sheet. You're like, ah, well, my, I don't know if I want absolute price exposure to Bitcoin. Maybe I want 50% price exposure to Bitcoin. Well, you can go hedge that other 50% uh, with a contract for difference and uh, retain partial custody of your funds for the duration of the DLC. So you don't have to worry about, you know, some bank like flagging it and, uh, you know, your money's caught in the U.S. uh, financial system forever, too. So I think there's like there's potential at both sides of the market, you know, very big bets with DLCs, very small bets with DLCs, likely on Lightning. Uh, and, you know, our goal is to just keep building so we can realize these goals eventually. One other question around on-chain fees. So this is a similar thing. I understand this applies even in the Lightning world because at the time you open a Lightning channel, people are sort of in this weird spot of not knowing what the fee market or block space market is going to look like yeah. at the time you close that channel. So what's that same situation like with DLCs? Because at the time we enter this, let's say you and I enter this DLC bet, and the fee market is very low or the block space market is very low and then it's very high at the time we go to close out. How do we deal with that? It, it, it's exactly the same problem. You know, you can do things like child pays for parent uh, to bump the fee rate. But you now, is that a great solution? No. I mean, it, it's it's the best with what we can do with the tools that we, what we do so far. Right? Yeah. So we, we have the exact same problem. If the like, say you're doing like a five year DLC or something like that. You probably want to be generous on the fees just because you, you got to get that thing confirmed before that refund lock time I was mentioning earlier specifically, because if you can't get that transaction in before the refund transaction becomes valid, well, you could potentially be losing out on rightfully earned sats that uh, you should be getting in your DLC. So there is absolutely a, a trade-off here between how conservatively you you know set your fee rates and then how aggressive or conservatively you set your refund lock time because uh you know depending upon what the blockchain uh, fee market is at the time it could least lo- uh, lead to you losing money also curious if you could touch on a little bit of the what it might look like in the on-chain dlc world versus a lightning dlc world and obviously we'll get into like the stable channel stuff as well but if you could just first outline the difference there what would what would that look like between on-chain dlc and lightning dlc so like referencing like you know the the fee stuff that we talked about earlier like my assumption when like we started really working on dlcs is like oh of course bitcoin fees are going to be high so we need to lift it up to lightning and you know make lightning more usable and uh you know add this new functionality to lightning and for like small bets you know users are going to be priced out of the on-chain fee market anyway so i'm still operating under that assumption because i think hopefully it does happen someday uh, but, you know, the difference between Lightning DLCs and on-chain DLCs are um, essentially, you know, you don't have to publish a closing transaction every single time you want to close a DLC, assuming that your counterparty is is cooperating. So um, you can just clear it off the Lightning channel state, similar to how you clear off an HTLC on a Lightning channel and just adjust the balance, you know, net the balances internally between your your two Lightning channels is 
is the idea behind lightning DLCs. So if you're doing like, you know, small five or $10 bets, like that starts making a lot of sense on lightning. If you're doing a million or, you know, $5 million bets, uh, you probably want to be doing on-chain DLCs. And of course, with anything on lightning, I think it has the potential to have a much better user experience associated with it as well. Uh, you know, there is some technical limitations that come up around uh, routed DLCs versus non-routed DLCs. The only things that are possible today are non-routed DLCs. So um, going back to our you know podcast bet we were referencing earlier, uh, the DLC would be an output in between the lightning channel that you and I have directly open to each other, Stefan. Like we would need to have a direct channel to one another. We couldn't, uh, you know, route it across the entire network and, uh, you know, set up the bet that way. In a PTLC world, that does become possible. However, there are trade-offs, right? It's like if you're doing, um, like, let, let's say, you know, we're doing like $100,000 or something outrageous like that for this bet. Uh, that means that locks $100,000 in capital across the entire Lightning Network while that bet's ongoing. And say, you know, we record this podcast on a Tuesday and, uh, you know, it, it gets published on a, you know, seven days from now. And then Marty attests in another seven days, you know, we're talking about 14 days of possibly having a thousand dollars in liquidity locked up across the entire lightning network. Um, so that, 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 that is a, lim a limitation in my mind. Uh, maybe a market can solve that. I don't have strong opinions on that, but it's a problem worth talking about at minimum, I think. Yeah. Interesting. And so, Maybe in the future, it's like some more complex model where the gambling site, let's say, is operating it and maybe you have a channel open between the gambling site and the peer, or I'm not sure, I haven't, maybe I haven't thought that out properly because it's between two different peers, but uh, maybe there's something there that the gambling site is being the kind of also playing an LSP role, you know? Yeah, it, I think, you know, that that is a possibility and... Yeah, I mean, it's an open question just in general with the fee problems on the Lightning Network, right? It's like, you know, I if I recall correctly, all fees are paid on like successful transactions and you don't have any fees paid on failed transactions, which probably warps incentives in a, in a weird way, non-ideal yeah. way, let's say, just to begin with. So um, what we, in my opinion, what we need to move to on Lightning Network is people getting compensated for, I guess, failures or successes and then... Also for the amount of time that the liquidity is locked in the channel for, and rather than um, I, I believe the current fee scheme is like you have a base fee and then you have a fee for the amount of liquidity you're using, but it doesn't have a time dimension for the amount of liquidity you're using. So like, you know, if I use one Bitcoin in liquidity for one second, that's a lot different than using one Bitcoin in liquidity for one week. So uh that that needs to be accounted for, and it's not an easy problem. I'm not trying to throw shade at Lightning developers or anything. It's it's a freaking hard problem to solve. Yeah, and as I recall from discussion with Rusty Russell of Blockstream working on C Lightning and also the Lightning spec, I think he has commented that he wasn't a fan of these long lived invoices that take a long time to settle because they're locking up liquidity across the network, and that could become a problem because in the future the network might quote unquote evolve defenses against that, and then people might. It might not be such a permissionless world. They might say, start saying, no, before you open that channel with me, I need to know who you are and it's KYC and it's all the permissioned aspects of it because I don't want to be risked. I don't want to risk you locking up all my liquidity for two weeks while you guys are doing your silly bet, right? As an example, right? Well, and I think I think that's a totally valid viewpoint, especially when you start thinking about the network health of the, the, the Lightning Network. You know, another one I think is like, 
the current incarnation of this is HODL invoices, right? And like, is that good? Is that bad? Uh, you know, it gets into this like feature trade-off that I was even talking about at the beginning of this podcast. It's like, when we bring features over from another blockchain, we don't want them to be parasitic to Bitcoin itself. And, uh, you know, that that also applies uh, with the Lightning Network as well. The um, so yeah, it's like you know, engineering yeah. trade and engineering. There's trade offs yeah. everywhere. Yeah, of course. And I think the other really interesting topic, also related to DLCs and Lightning, is this concept of a stable channel. Now, I know this is something you have spoken about, and in fact, Strike and HRF did announce a bounty related to this. Also, so could you just explain for listeners, firstly, what is a stable channel and how might that be achieved using DLC technology? Yeah, so uh, stable channels just mean the value in sats in the channel is stable relative to another currency. So typically United States dollars. Um, Let's say Stefan and I are in a lightning channel together. I don't want Bitcoin price exposure. I just want to know I can always get $100 in Bitcoin out of this channel. And Stefan's like, perfect. Like, well, I'm okay taking Bitcoin no matter, you know, how the the price moves. So uh, what we would do is we would enter into a DLC into in our Lightning channel that represents that financial agreement. And uh, we would pick an Oracle that's going to attest to what the BTC USD price is in, you know, a month or whatever time frame we care about. And uh, for the duration for that next month, we would have um, an agreement, a DLC output on our Lightning channel that represents that agreement. Um, When the month is up, we can either agree to, okay, we see the Bitcoin price is $50,000 and, you know, we appropriate the amount of Satoshis in the channel accordingly so that I get my $100 back. Stefan either gets more sats if uh, Bitcoin's number goes up or less sats less sats of Bitcoin's number goes down. Um, and, and, and that's the essential bet that you're making on the other side of the channel. But me, as Chris, will always know that I am going to get a fixed amount of Satoshi's worth of USD in the channel back when uh, this DLC expires. I always know I'm getting $100 worth of Satoshi's and Stefan gets the price exposure of Bitcoin if it goes up or down or sideways, whatever. Um, so yeah, does, does that make sense or can I clarify anything there? Yeah, sure. So with the concept of essentially we're using an Oracle to give us that price feed and we're obviously we're placing some trust in that Oracle, but assuming people are both okay with that trade-off, right? Which is the assumption, uh, which, you know, in many cases that user might be okay with that because they're currently leaving their money at a bank, which is much more permission. So yeah. we can think of this like a more permissionless or less permissioned way of uh, achieving a similar outcome because many people in the developing world really want this. They really want some kind of stable coin or something like a stable coin. And so this might be a way of helping achieve that. And so this is why it's obviously very interesting. So I guess a few questions people might be having at this point is, would that require a channel between, I mean, it would require a channel between direct channel between you and me. So in this example, let's say a wallet wants to provide a lightning stable channel service, that means they need a direct channel with all of their customers, right? That's exactly right. Uh, In the current, you know, world that we live in, uh, with, you know, where the lightning network's at. And uh, yeah, and also there there are some more like real world limitations to this. Uh, The every time, so 
every time that a payment's like routed through one of our channels, like let's say we have, you know, a fixed amount of sats that we're stabilizing, and then we have some excess sats that we're just doing normal Lightning Network activity with. Every time that a payment gets routed through you or me, we need to recompute all of the uh, uh, all of the information needed to enforce that DLC anytime a channel is updated, and that could be a very computationally expensive uh, thing to do. Uh, we have these things called adapter signatures in DLC world, and it's not too important to understand how they work, but you just need to understand that there's a bunch of them for these numeric types of um, numeric types of bets. And that means every time that uh, we route something through our channels, we need to recompute all of these different adapter signatures. And so th there is a little bit more um, load that's put on your lightning node uh, to to enforce this stuff in a trustless uh, fashion, you know, modulo the Oracle trust, of course. Right. And is there any change required to Bitcoin protocol-wise to enable this? Like, does it require any of these soft forks or any changes to the way Bitcoin transactions work today? It, it does not. And even the, the the direct channels that I'm talking about here do not require lightning network specification changes. There is internals that would need to you know change inside of lightning nodes, such as, you know, you need to support DLCs, for instance. But there isn't any spec lightning specification changes that need, need to be made that I'm aware of. You know, I think you probably have some Lightning developers that listen to your podcast, so I'd be interested in hearing if I'm, you know, fully correct on that. I believe I am, but it's always good to have your work checked. Um, so, yeah, and like, you know, going to the wider uh, soft fork discussion, you know, a long time ago, I think I decided I'm not going to try and change Bitcoin's consensus protocol anymore. It's just a, it's a freaking slog, man. And uh, the nice thing about DLCs and the stable channel Lightning DLCs is it doesn't require a change. So we can build permissionlessly and like ship this ship these features without uh, um, needing to wait for a Bitcoin soft fork, which is extremely painful to do. Yeah. One other question. If the price of Bitcoin were to move very rapidly, how would that impact our, let's say you and I have this stable channel and the price of Bitcoin either just you know, it goes 10x or it just goes, you know, we go through an 80% crash. Is it possible that there wouldn't be enough sats in the channel to actually meaningfully keep that stable? And I guess you would have to kind of have a few, a range between which that stable channel works. And if you go, if, if there's like a really violent up or down move, well, all bets are off. Or how, how, what would that? How would that look? What would that look like? No, you're you're absolutely right on the financial engineering side of things. It's you know it's relative to the amount. So if I'm the guy that wants the stability, you're the guy providing the liquidity, and I need to decide. Okay, how much liquidity do I want Stefan to provide? And that will be uh, relative to how much safety I have in terms of Bitcoin price volatility. So if we have like some sort of crazy seventy five percent price swing. There, there is a chance that it'll be partially collateralized. The we we do our we in the DLC specification we are building features to support this case so that um, you can add things like liquidation thresholds uh, to a DLC. So, for instance, if you know Bitcoin goes below twenty thousand uh, dollars, I know that you don't have enough money to guarantee the peg. I can liquidate your side of the channel and. Get my twenty thousand dollars in sat, or so my hundred dollars in sats now. So then I can go sell them on an exchange or something like that. If I, uh, you know, really care about having that hundred dollar fixed price 
uh, for, for those sats. Um, yeah. yeah. And one other question is we might need to think as well about what kind of collateral to learn or learn to, you know, almost like learn to value ratios that people might be operating in. So in that example, if let's say the person who is looking for this technology, they don't have a lot of sats, they might only have sure $100 worth or $200 worth and they're putting 100 up would they need to actually lock up more than $100 worth of Bitcoin? Or is it actually the trader side who's locking up more? Do you, do you get what I'm asking? In in your example here, is it the person with a small amount of collateral that wants the stability in the channel? Yes. Okay, yeah. Then it, it all that matters to them is that they have the $100 up front. For the trader side, though, they do need to be over collateralized gotcha. for these price movements because... Say if if Bitcoin um, if Bitcoin goes down, you know, say I want the stability. I always want my hundred dollars. I don't have a lot of Bitcoin. Uh, I enter into a DLC with you. If Bitcoin price goes down, you're transferring Sats to me in the when yeah. we settle the channel because you know Bitcoin number go down. If Bitcoin number go up, I'm transferring Sats to you because I care about just having $100 in Bitcoin. If Bitcoin becomes more valuable, well, that means I need less sats to keep my $100 peg, which means that you, you know, profit off of this. You get more sats and, uh, you know, you, you make out like a bandit in that case. So, sorry, I forgot what your original question was there. Hopefully, Yeah, I yeah no, I think that's, that's, a, that's a good explanation. So essentially, the trader side, let's say, is the one who, who generally yes. will need to put up more sats than the actual amount. And the person who wants stability, let's say there's someone in El Salvador, as an example, they just want $100 stability. They are, they're just putting up $100 worth of Bitcoin into the stable channel. But the other things to think about here as well are what's the situation in the block space market? Because they are still going to have to do an on-chain transaction to even enter into this DLC. And we're going to have to do an on-chain transaction to close out. So that's something also, right? Well, look, look, if you already have a Lightning channel established with your counterparty and Lightning DLCs are supported, there is no on-chain transaction that's needed here, assuming everybody's playing nice. Uh, um, if you are doing this directly on-chain, then yes, you need an opening and a closing transaction for your DLC. I see. So it might make sense if you're a self-custodial user who already has Lightning, and let's say this gets built out and it's built, the functionality is built into yep. some of the Lightning wallets that they offer this, and then maybe there's an easy way for traders to plug into that and yeah. say, yeah, I want to take the other side of that trade because, you know, I think Bitcoin price is going down, and therefore I, I, I might profit in sats out of this. So maybe that's that's how, what it might look like. Yeah, and I, I think this is also a path to, you know, providing more ways for hodlers to earn yield on their sats if that's something that they want with, you know, not having to put your money into, uh, you know, some th sort of third-party custodian. So I think it's interesting from a perspective of making like Bitcoin a more useful uh, yield-bearing asset too. And uh, like you said, yeah, providing liquidity, for instance, for stable channels. It's I think it's a worthy goal. It's something that you can make some money on and you're helping somebody at the end of the day and doing this in a way where you still have some custody over your coins you know it's the oracle at the end of the day that uh, determines how much sats gets sent where but uh, yeah i think it's very uh, interesting from that perspective too of like these og hodlers that have a lot of coin uh, if they want to make some more coin and also provide uh, real world utility to other people that want stability in their bitcoin uh, you you get this kind of beautiful market uh, going here Exactly. And so just thinking that out in a DLC context. So in DLCs, there's this concept of CET, contract execution transaction. And so 
in this example, let's say it's the cooperative case. Well, then obviously you and I, we our nodes will talk together and be like, okay, I'll sign your, your transaction or you sign mine and we'll broadcast that to the chain and then each of us will get our number of sats back correctly. And then what does the non-cooperative case look like in that example? Do you know? Well, okay. So just to, are, are we talking about lightning DLCs or on-chain DLCs? Lightning. Okay, with Lightning DLCs, yeah, so you, you have this output on your Lightning channel, the Oracle attests to the signatures, or, you know, attests to what the Bitcoin price was. And then the cooperative case, yeah, of course, we just, you know, net it. In the non-cooperative case, we have to go to the blo blockchain with our um, uh, commitment transaction. And then based off of that commitment transaction, we spend the DLC output on that commitment transaction, along with our HTLCs that may have been in flight, and, you know, appropriate money correctly that way. The nice thing about on-chain DLCs, it's a non-interactive uh, settlement process. So that means you don't have to be online to, uh, if, if we're in an on-chain world, so I'm, I'm switching gears a little bit here, but if we live in an on-chain world for DLCs, it's non-interactive. I can close out the DLC at any time, or you can close out the DLC at any time, and you don't need to talk to me, or I don't need to talk to you, and we can go about our merry way, because we have the Oracle signatures, and that's the... Uh, the beauty of DLCs is if you have the Oracle signatures, I've already got some your encrypted signatures. I can decrypt your signature when the Oracle attests and then just you know broadcast a CET that spends the correct amount of funds. Gotcha. So let me just summarize that, make sure everyone can follow along. So in the on-chain world, you're actually, it's kind of just like you just already have the information you need to close it out because that Oracle, when he broadcast his attestation, my node already knows how to reconstruct the correct transaction to take my money back, right? I can already do that unilaterally without input from you. Now, in the Lightning DLC world, ideally, we cooperate together so that way it's not as bad as an outcome uh, in terms of closing things out, but I still could, but it would just mean I would have to close out that channel yes. between you and me, and let's say there's lots of in-flight HDLCs, lots of outputs out there, then that, that transaction is going to be very big because there's all these HDLCs and you know, I'm going to pay all this cost and you're going to close the channel. And if we ideally wanted to keep that channel open longer, then that's a bad outcome there. But you know, theoretically, in the non-cooperative case, obviously, if you're cooperative, then it's all green, all green happy paths, right? Yeah, it, you, you have it exactly right. And uh, so it, closing out a Lightning DLC in a non-cooperative case is like kind of closing out a lightning channel in a non-cooperative case already. So there isn't really uh, much that changes in that regard, fortunately, because, uh, you know, hopefully uh, in, in a happy path will happen a lot more than the sad path. And, uh, you know, we'll get nice behavior market participants. Uh, but maybe we could first some on-chain fee demand if uh, people start mass closing out their lightning channels. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's right. Well, maybe we'll help out the uh, that security budget in 2035 with our fees. <laughs> but um, yeah. look, let's 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 summarize because we've we've covered a lot of things this episode. But um, just to summarize some of the key points out there, DLCs are essentially they're at a point where obviously developers and maybe power users can get yes. into it, and you can play around with this stuff, and it might have some really cool applications, particularly in the gambling world, particularly. If we do get this idea of a stable channel, I think that could be really interesting. And the reason why is if there's more regulation that comes down the pipeline on stable coins, this is like another way of doing that in a more permissionless way. And so this could be really useful for a lot of people. So from the, the person in the developing world who wants the stable channel, they're getting the stability. And then the hodlers or the traders can get yes. some return. 
And exactly. So there might be a market to be built up around this. And bringing it back to even at the start, we're saying, well, what things can be brought to Bitcoin and can we create real financial services on Bitcoin? So I guess that's how I'm thinking about it. How would you, if you had to give some closing thoughts for listeners out there to summarize things, uh, how would you summarize it? Well, yeah, I think you have it right. In terms of you know where we're at in real world implementations today, there's going to be bugs still. Don't put too much money in. Do tinker, do push the boundaries, like understand that you, you, you may hit something along the way. Understand, you know, the new technology that we're bringing to Bitcoin, why it's useful. Maybe it's not your cup of tea, but guess what? The beautiful thing about DLCs is uh, you don't have to use them if you don't want to. Um, we need to... Uh, Build out a trustworthy Oracle market. Uh, the you know the the thing that you know will be the Achilles heel of DLCs is if an Oracle goes AWOL or starts lying and it's going to look bad on the industry. So we need trustworthy people to operate Oracles. We need uh, people that are interested in providing liquidity for some of these financial um, contracts that we talked about on this call. And I you know I think the DLC ecosystem is going to keep emerging. You know we've we've got a ton of feedback. Uh, People excited on the uh, you know financial engineering side of things and the sports betting side of things, and I think your um, your point about it being where Lightning was in 2017, 2018 is exactly right. Um, it's going to take time to build out the ecosystem. Uh, we need uh, feedback from users to tell us what direction we should be going and reporting you know issues that they find along the way. One final note, I, I just always like to reiterate with people. Um, for your, for your listeners is like also with the stable channel stuff, just always understand that there is no coin. There is no token that represents a dollar here. When you settle the DLC, you get Bitcoin at the end of the day. And as a byproduct of that, you're exposed to price risk. Once the DLC is finished, you're not getting an Omni token that represents tether. You are getting sats that at that point in time are worth a hundred dollars. So there, there is, you know, a, a difference there between the derivatives world and then kind of what we know as stable coins today. So, um, and yeah, I, I, we're, we're going to be working to bring, you know, our DLC wallet to more platforms. We're going to revamp the desktop app. We're going to, you know, look at doing mobile applications and uh, figuring out how to kind of get the architecture right uh, for DLCs as well. It's very um, easy to, uh, you know, I, I guess on the architecture point, uh, architecture point of view it's like you always need maybe someone online at all times like a bookie or an exchange or something on your umbrella node that's hosting a market uh, but then you can have uh, offers is what we call them sent out like emails almost to a bunch of participants and people can look at their phone and be like hey I want to accept that offer I think it's an attractive bet or I think it's an attractive uh, you know financial bet that hedges risk that I care about so there's a lot of green pasture ahead of us we're super excited to you know start tackling these things and getting this stuff into the hands of users so that they can tell us um, what they want to see next fantastic Chris well I really enjoyed it and uh, where can people find you online uh, yeah so assured bits Twitter twitter.com slash slash s u r e d bits. Um, I am Chris underscore Stewart underscore five on Telegram and Twitter. And yeah, reach out to me if you want to try this stuff out. I'm more than happy to be a counterparty to your DLC. Excellent. I'm uh, looking forward to seeing where this goes. Thanks for joining me, Chris, and hope to see you soon. Now, share this episode with your family and friends so they learn about Bitcoin DLCs and get the show notes at stefanlevera.com slash 349. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the Citadels.